or live. All right. Welcome, everyone. This is episode number 58 of the Growing with My Fellow Growers panel show. I'm Dr. MJ Coco. I'm going to be stepping in as guest host today. Um, and my pleasure to sort of come here and, and guest host for Shane. Um, we got a great panel, as always, and um, go ahead and introduce some of the rest of my panelists here. Um, let's go ahead and start with Can Can. Can Can Grow, how you doing? I'm good, man. Thanks. Yeah, Can Can Grow here. Glad to be uh, on the panel once again. Looking forward to uh, chatting it up with everyone. All right. Where can people find you, Can Can? Yeah, I'm, it's Can Can Grow, C-A-N-C-A-N-N-G-R-O-W on pretty much all platforms. All right. Thanks for joining us as always. And let's go over to Jack, Jack Greenstock. How you doing? I'm doing well. Hope everybody else is uh, hanging in there. You can find me at Jack Greenstock on Instagram and Cannabis. You can also find me on Twitter at Jack underscore Greenstock. And I host Greenstock Talks, the podcast. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, Jack. We have uh, integrated pest specialist Matthew Gates with us as always. How's it going, Matt? It's going really good. I'm doing well. And, um, you know, we're doing these podcasts uh, every week, but I've also got a new thing if people are interested um, on the, uh, I have two new things. I have one on the 11th and one on the 7th. Uh, they're webinars. You can check those out uh, if you check out my Instagram at SyncAngel for more information. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Matt. Um, let's go head on over to Spartan Grown. How's it going, Spartan? Oh, it's always going good over here. I'm always busy. And um, because I love doing these things, you can find me in a lot of places, but uh, mainly Instagram. Look, me, look for me at Spartan Grown. But today I'm doing a marathon, man. I'm starting with uh, Growing With My Fellow Growers, followed immediately by the Michigan Bros Grow Show, followed immediately by, or I think till at 1130 is the uh, Eagle Gardens Show on his YouTube channel. So I don't know how long I'll be able to make it, but I'm going to go for the whole shebang today. <laughs> Dang, man. We'll, we'll try to take it easy on you if this is the first leg. All right. And then I think uh, last panelist uh, with us so far is Mr. Brandon Rust. How are you doing, Brandon? I'm doing good. How is everybody? I'm glad to be here as always. I, I love to have the, the company and the time to sit and talk with fellow panel members and bounce ideas new information off of each other and help out the uh the the home grow community so uh you can find my instagram profile at rust.brandon you can also find a link in my bio to my company kashi earthworks and the cultivation and the uh the cultivation facility i work for in there as well all right Thank you guys. And thank you everybody in the chat for showing up as always. Um, guys, if you're in the chat or if you're listening to the show, watching us live, be sure to go ahead and hit the like button for us. That definitely helps the YouTube metrics. Um, and if you're in chat, go ahead and turn on the live chat. That way you'll see more of the comments. It filters some stuff out if you're in the, the top chat. Um, so I'll go ahead and introduce myself again. I'm Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. Um, like I said, I'll be stepping in as guest host today. Um, I wanted to, to get into, it's been a, a pretty 
exciting week um, for us over at uh, Coco for Cannabis. Um, I finally launched well, most of the, the Grow Light Guide project that I've been talking about for the last, uh, I don't know, couple of months at this point. Um, so we published our Grow Light Calculator and we published a couple of articles, um, a few test reports already, our landing page, a bunch of other stuff. Um, so I wanted to, to get into um, sort of what we're doing and thinking about um, Grow light metrics, um, uh, you know, I've been really up in sort of the, the world of uh, photons lately. So um, I'd like to see if we can, uh, you know, demystify some of the, the PAR stuff, the PPF and the PPFD um, and explain a little bit about how um, we're calculating um, grow light efficiency, grow light coverage and uh, grow light harvest potential um, using photosynthetic photon flux data. Um, before I get into sort of all of that, I wanted to do a quick shout out for the spring autoflower challenge. Um, the spring autoflower challenge begins um, just, just over two weeks from today. Um, most of us are gonna be growing autos, although there is also a photo period group in the spring autoflower challenge. Um, we're dropping seeds on April 20th on 420 and everybody is welcome to, to grow along with us. So if you're getting ready to start a grow, if you thought about growing autos, um, even if you wanna grow something else, um, come on over, sign up for the, the Spring Autoflower Challenge. It's free, we're, gonna, we're putting together some cool prizes for it. Um, so I just wanted to give a, a shout out for that. I'm sending out an email about it later tonight. We're gonna start voting for the last couple of groups. We also got Noah the Grower just joined us. Oh, cool. Let's do a quick intro to, to Noah the Grower. Noah, welcome. Is he in? He's yeah. on mute, Noah. Yeah, sorry about that. I was okay. just uh, scrambling there. Yeah, how's it going, everybody? I'm Noah the Grower from Instagram, and I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Welcome. Um, so, yeah, let's get into some of this stuff. You know, we... we um, you a little bit about what I've been up to with uh, the grow light calculator. Um, you know, people are still using watts to, to measure the, the size, to measure their harvest, to measure all sorts of other things. And um, it's becoming increasingly untenable to use watts as the efficiency of uh, LED grow lights improves really beyond the range where the, the traditional HPS and CMH lights were able to get. Um, so it's time to really move past using just watts to evaluate grow lights, um, but there's a great deal of confusion about how to use, how to actually use measurements of, of light. Um, so what we're trying to do is, is use photosynthetic photon flux data. Um, and, you know, I want to sort of try to, to simplify some of that. So before the show, I asked um, the panelists, if they um, had the opportunity to go and, and sort of review the calculator, or the guides or anything, I wanted to know if any of the panelists had questions or anything that they thought stood out would be interesting to talk about there. Well, um, yeah, I, I have something. It's not, it's not necessarily, you know, um, intrinsic to the, the graph itself, but I suppose it, I suppose it's actually fundamental. Just the, uh -huh. I think starting with the, um, which I always like to do, 
sort of the physiological uh, limit for the plant because that that right there uh, yep. I love when you talk about it because it sort of um, eliminates a lot of other misunderstandings at the base. Right. Okay. So the physiological limits of of light, it's really determined by the density of photons that strike the surface of the, the photosynthetic surface. And if the density of photons is greater than the plant can use in photosynthesis, then it can do damage to the plant. And, and the plant, to sort of prevent that damage, um, does various photoprotective measures. It can physically move leaves. It can reallocate chlorophyll. It can do other things like that. Um, when the light becomes really too dense, um, when the photons really become too dense, then um, it goes into photoinhibition, which, which actually shuts down the photosynthetic process and the plant tries to protect itself. Um, it's, it's not until that point that you really start to see chlorosis and other sort of signs of uh, plant damage. So um, those densities are determined by um, the limiting factor of photosynthesis, um, which is in most of our grow tents, um, it's actually photons. The photon density itself is the limiting factor. And, and that's why a lot of people say more light is better um, because they're using not enough light. And if, if you're using not enough light, then more light is better because photons are the, the limiting factor. But once you're providing enough um, photons or a great enough photon density, um, then it's usually carbon dioxide in our groves that um, becomes the limiting factor. Um, so the density of photons that you can apply depends on whether or not you're supplementing carbon dioxide. Um, for most growers, we recommend not supplementing carbon dioxide. Um, so most of our, our recommendations are based on um, growing in ambient concentrations of, of carbon dioxide. Um, and when you're growing in an ambient carbon dioxide, then the optimal density for, for photosynthetic photon flux density is 700 micromoles um, of PPFD. Um, and anything over 1,000 PPFD can do damage to the plant at, at atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide. Um, so that, that is an important sort of uh, benchmark that, that helps to determine a number of other things. Since sort of 700 is the optimal PPFD, um, and again, that, that's a density reading, then we can translate that based on the size of our grow space into a PPF, a photosynthetic photon flux reading, which is a measurement of sort of the total number of photons. Um, so let me back up and, and talk about those two metrics a little bit more because I think they cause a lot of confusion um, because people try to think about PPF and PPFD as being measurements of light. I think it becomes a lot easier when you think of them as measurements of photons. And specifically, they're the PAR photons, the photosynthetically active radiation photons. Um, PPF, which is photosynthetic photon flux, um, counts all the photons. And it's just a count of the photons. And if you get the total PPF value of a light fixture, that gives you a sense of the total size of that light fixture. The, the PPFD is the density of photons 
at a specific target point. And so oftentimes we're thinking about the density of photons that are hitting the, the canopy of, of the plants or the leaves of the plants. Um, but PPFD varies depending on how far it is from the fixture itself. Um, so if you measure PPFD very close to a, a grow light, you're gonna have a really high reading because there's a high density of photons there. If you take a reading of the same grow light further away, the density of photons is less as you move further away from the, the fixture. So you get a lower reading. Um, so the PVFD is good for sort of figuring out how high to set your lights and how that much density is going to apply. Um, but the PVFD numbers don't describe sort of the size of the light overall. They just describe the density of photons at the point that it's measured. So I'm rattling on a little bit too much. It's No, but the context I think is important. I really appreciate it. Uh, excellent, excellent. So I'll stop, pause here and see if people have questions. Maybe in the, the chat, I haven't been um, paying as good of attention to the chat or if any of uh, you guys have any questions about what I've said. I, so did, I actually have a couple questions. One's unrelated, uh, but it's with the cocoa for cannabis um, auto flower challenge that you're starting on 420. Is that starting seeds on 420 or are we like planting like that seeds get wet okay and then secondly um on your light calculator it, there's not very many preloaded lights no. to choose from is that something that's going to grow or absolutely yeah it's just it takes a little while to to gather all of those and i'm writing notes about each fixture that i load but i've been trying to just get the the basic sort of infrastructure loaded at this point um, but we'll be able to add a lot of fixtures. I'm going to add a lot of fixtures that um, Shane has already tested. We're going to be testing more fixtures, but I can also load fixtures into that calculator based on estimated data. With that said, I just wanted to say one of the uh, followers reached out to me and, and sent me uh, screenshots from the grow light calculator. Yeah. And I, I looked at it and I was like, one, these numbers look a little off. And they're like, oh, that's because I'm Australian. So like it was the dollars were a lot higher amount. And oh, like right. the PPF uh, calculations and things, mm -hmm. um, some of them were from like companies that I would say give like an honest reading. And then some of them were from companies that give like a little bit of a fudged reading or like a higher reading than yep. I think they might actually perform. So I think that's uh, some, something to caution some of the people because they're just going to like uh, X, do. Y, or Z. So, yeah, okay, yeah. good, good, good. I, ha I haven't gone, had the time to go through Absolutely. it just yet. I'm sorry. But, There's uh, three factors that you have, to, you have to choose between when you use the calculator. And we actually assume that you're going to show up with manufacturers' calculated values, which aren't lies per se, but they're, they're PPF values. So there's, let me just sort of explain that from the beginning. Um, there's three different ways that, that photosynthetic photon flux data is measured or calculated. Most grow light manufacturers simply calculate the photosynthetic photon flux by um, multiplying the known efficiency of the diode by the number of watts that they're running through the fixture. And so when you see those numbers that say like 2.35 or something, that's actually the efficiency of the diodes that are being used. And when they're publishing that as the efficiency of the fixture, they're assuming that 100% of the watts that go into that fixture um, become usable light, which is just a, a farce, it's not true, but that's how they're getting that, those calculated values. 
So we analyzed over 60 different fixtures um, and realized there's a, a fairly standard error rate between those calculated values. They overestimate um, photosynthetic photon flux by about 18%. So when you enter those values from manufacturers in our calculator, it takes off about 18% from that to get down to the total PPF value. So total PPF is when they place a, a fixture in an integrating sphere. And an integrating sphere is designed to capture every single photon that the fixture produces. And it measures every single photon. So it's the total photosynthetic photon flux. Um, the good grow light manufacturers, and there's several, um, FGI that was on with us a couple of weeks ago, they um, publish um, total tested PPF data. Um, Fluence does. Um, HLG, Timber. Um, HLG's numbers appear to be calculated values, not, not true values, at least the numbers that they publish in their, their marketing literature. HLG sends their stuff off to be sphere tested every fish. Yeah, so you can find you can find those data for it. Absolutely. And if you know the data is coming from a, a sphere testing, then you should put it into our calculator as total PPF data. Um, but total PPF still captures all of the photons that a fixture produces. And it's not an accurate representation of, uh, of the situation that we grow in. We don't grow in an integrating sphere. We grow in a grow tent. And in every situation that's not an integrating sphere, some photons are lost. Um, so in, based on, again, that same sort of analysis of 60 fixtures and their test reports, we can see that between sort of what the fixture is supposed to produce and what actually arrives at the canopy, about 85%. So about 15% is lost in that transfer. So if you count like all of the photons that the fixture can produce, about 85% of them on an average fixture arrive at the canopy of the plants. That's almost one fifth that's lost. That's pretty significant. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that's reflective losses, um, radiative losses. It hits things that aren't plants, right, along the way. Makes me think about even more natural settings and how, how important, obviously, light collection has been for plants, you know, throughout the, you know, millions of years, hundreds of millions of years, and how important, like, those physics dynamics have been, I'm sure, um, and in crowded forests and that sort of a thing where it can be even worse. So I'll say that Shane at Migros testing showed very well that the reflective walls versus an open uh, test format made a huge difference. Yes. So having the mylar reflective surface. Yeah, that bounces that light back. But you got to think that light that gets bounced back, you're still losing something every time it bounces. And oftentimes it bounces more than once as it sort of makes its way down and finds the plants, right? Photons go zigging around inside that grow space, hitting off of all sorts of different things. Um, so yeah, so we argue then that the number we really want to pay attention to on grow lights is the number of photons that actually arrive to the canopy of the plants. Um, so integrating spheres overmeasure photons, as, at least as far as we're concerned with growers, because they're measuring photons that we'd never be able to actually use for photosynthesis. Um, so the best way to sort of understand the power, the, the overall 
quantity of photons that a grow light fixture can deliver is to do a field test exactly like Shane has been doing um, in a grow tent with reflective walls. Um, and that's actually the final article that I still haven't published yet. And it's the one that I think is probably the best and goes sort of deepest into all of this, which is our grow light testing protocol, which describes the importance of choosing the right grow space, um, the importance of reflective walls and the importance of fixture hanging height. So I'll, I'll pause and see if you guys have other questions or if I covered that. Um, I'm curious, um, I'm not sure if you went over this specifically or if it was glossed over, maybe most people probably could understand it, but like, uh, why are watts a poor proxy for performance? I don't want to like steal or like say anything. Yeah, well, they used to be an adequate measure, right? We don't really care about the electricity. Like the plants don't care about the electricity. The plants care about the photons that strike the leaves because it's those photons that strike the leaves that, that actually power photosynthesis. Now, when everybody was using HID lights, the HPS, basically everybody, and in the commercial space, everybody was using thousand watt double-ended HPS, then there's a known uh, sort of conversion factor between electricity and the number of photons that are gonna strike the canopy of the plants. Um, and with those um, HID fixtures, you can get about 1.3, 1.35, um, uh, micromoles of usable PPF uh, per watt. And since that ratio stayed the same generally across different fixtures, then watts became an easy proxy measure for the amount of photosynthetic photon flux. Um, but the problem is that now there's LED fixtures that get almost twice what of the usable PPF that those HID fixtures got. So wattage is no longer an accurate measurement of the amount of photons that you're getting from a fixture. And rather than, I mean, what the manufacturers did is they tried to do these wattage equivalencies as though like equivalating the, the, the wattage was what was important, but wattage was always a proxy measure. When we measure lights for the, like the size or the size of the harvest or anything in terms of watts, that's always a proxy for the number of photons. And it assumes a, a, a set ratio between the number of watts and the number of photons. Um, well, can I jump in and ask a few yeah. questions and, and just comment? Absolutely. Uh, you quote at 1.3, but Shane at Migros testing showed that a parabolic reflector had HPS and field testing up as high as 1.7. So I do think that even with HPS and HID lighting, there is a large range. So the wattage- Are you talking about this Gaviton double-ended 1000 watt test? No, I think it was like a 600 watt, like just old old school uh, parabolic. I could send you the link. But, uh, okay, I have a spreadsheet with all of his test data. I mean, that's, that's the test data that I've been analyzing to do these calculations. So that, it's- specifically sort of, I'm, I'm sure I've already seen that data. I will say that there's a number of reasons that precluded us from using a lot of Shane's previous tests. Um, either the test area size wasn't correct, the hanging height was a little bit different than what we would want it to be to, to optimize um, the usable PPF readings. Um, some of the times that he was testing the, the double-ended fixtures, he was testing them in a 4x4 four four tent, and so it became 
the test area size wasn't correct to get an accurate reading on the usable PPF. Um, I agree though, Jack, the thousand watt double-ended fixtures are higher, but the numbers that he has on the 600 watt HPS are considerably um, sort of more mediocre than that. Yeah, I, I do recall that, but the, I, all, the only thing I was trying to point out is reflector makes a big difference in HPS. So they, yes. they could find measurable differences in one reflector to another. And then the reason I wanted to bring up Watts is I'd be remiss in not saying this because it is the cheap homegrown podcast. Yeah. And the reason I think a lot of people find it to be a good measurement is uh, we, you said that we don't care about Watts. Well, the plants don't care about Watts. We care about Watts because we have to pay the bill. As a home grower, especially right. oh, a cheap no. home grower, we have to pay the bill. And Watts so is Watts is a part. good measurement just because people care about what they have to pay at the bill at the end of the year or at the end of the month, whatever it is. So when they're going to buy their light and they figure how many watts does it draw from the wall, they can do calculations like kilowatt per hour and figure yep. out what they're going to have to pay. Absolutely. So we definitely use watts. Different yeah. lights have different calculations and, and efficiencies, and, and that's important to know. But, but at that's the why a lot of growers too. use watts. At the right. same time, especially coming from the commercial space, there's a lot of different voltages you can run lights off of too. So watts really doesn't mean a whole hell of a lot at that point because, yeah. you know, if I run off 220, you know, I, I'm consuming less. It's like I get charged half as much electricity instead of using, you know, a 110. Is it really half as much? And not half, but close. Yeah, as far it's, as it's, more, it's much more efficient. I'll say that. And you can even see in here, years. Jack, on this point about using watts because we definitely still use watts. I mean, you use watts to determine the photon efficiency. The photon efficiency is the amount of photons divided by the watts that are used. Um, and that's probably the single most important measure to evaluate and compare different grow light fixtures is photon efficiency. But you can't just use watts. I mean, I'm not suggesting that we stop paying attention to watts. I'm just arguing that we, we stop using it to try to measure everything about grow lights because it no longer is an accurate measurement of everything about grow lights. Um, so our calculator, a suggestion? Requires, our calculator requires three data points. It requires a PPF data point, a wattage data point, and a price data point to calculate everything that, that sort of we think is the most important information about the grow light. Sorry, did you have something else to say, Jack? I, I was just going to say, I think um, if you get familiar with any of the subsections of lighting, like I've become familiar with LED, uh, specifically Cobb technology, and uh -huh. certain types of Cobbs, just how efficient they are, you can give people a rough range of, like if you know they're using a, a, a Cree or a Citizen or whatever, and it's got a certain efficiency, how many watts per square foot they would need with a typical driver yeah. because no i agree but built lights that's before, always you know. a proxy measurement and it doesn't work to evaluate and compare grow lights so what we can do now with our calculator is do side-by-side -side direct evaluations and comparisons of different fixtures with different efficiency ratings you can do a side-by-side -side comparison of a hid light with a led light um, and see sort of what the difference is in, in the purchase cost efficiency and in the photon efficiency. Um, and if all you're paying attention to is watts, I agree, it's a rough and ready sort of shorthand in certain situations when you're aware of what the photon efficiency rating is. That was just kind of uh, pointing back before like this calculator existed, like how people were able to get a decent estimate. Like I used to use, I would go to like Bridge Lux, uh, they make Vero cobs and I'd look at their efficiency data versus like some of the other cobs. And it was one that happened to be affordable for me. And I figured 
how many watts it can be driven like between 50 and 150 and how many of them I would need to cover a certain amount of space and things like that. So um, it's not perfect for sure. And for comparing lights, I think your system is definitely uh, more efficient and, and straightforward. But I think a lot of the people in the past that have like used these metrics sort of uh, just found a way to make it work for them and, and their buddies well, or whoever. Really until the last couple of years, they worked all right. I mean, that's sort of my point. It's, it's only been in the last couple of years that LED lights that get significantly better photon efficiencies have really been becoming more sort of dominant in the market. There was a, a, a sort of fringe market for them for a few years before that. Um, but now they're largely, I, I think, taking over the, the home grow space. Um, from talking to, to different manufacturers, they're all looking forward to making um, only sort of higher efficiency fixtures. And as soon as you get, uh, you know, above 1.75 in, in terms of, um, or even not that high, really, to do the, the gram per watt comparisons or to use wattage as sort of the metric to evaluate um, sort of the size that you need for the lights. Um, and I think that that actually becomes more confusing to say, okay, well, we can use wattage for some fixtures and we have to use something else for other fixtures. But when you want to know sort of the amount of light, I, I think we should go directly to the correct measurement, which is photosynthetic photon flux, which measures the quantity of photons that a fixture can produce. I think the problem with watts is just that um, because with older type fixtures, mostly the HIDs, um, it was, it kind of sufficed to be able to say that, okay, well, I have a 600 watt HPS, 1000 watt HPS. And I think what's happened particularly with LEDs is that, um, some of the more suspect companies out there, it's, it, it's, it's the metric that is most used to deceive people, I think, uh, with a lot of, uh, um, you know, maybe less than honest manufacturers out there because most people don't understand how it differs with LEDs and they use that. And that's why you see comments and forums and what have you, where you'll have someone uh, through no fault of their own say, you know, I have a 1000 watt LED. Is that good enough? Right. And, you know, and it was because it was touted as a 1000 watt LEDs because it had 100 LED diodes that could max out at 10 watts per diode when really they're running it at three watts per diode and it's pulling 300 watts, you know, out of the wall. So I think that some manufacturers have kind of used that as a way to, um, you know, this, you know, deceive people. I can't put it in any other way uh, without getting, uh, you know, by still, uh, you're just fudging numbers saying, oh, well, it, it's true, but you're just not looking at it the right way. Now, physiologically, I have a question. You say you have given your plants like the uh, optimal amount of uh, photonic density uh, yep. or, or flux density. Um, like, could you describe for me, maybe this would be also kind of an interesting thing uh, just for the chat and, and also myself, like a plant that's getting this, the optimal versus half that versus quarter that like what are the kind of it's a curve so okay. it, it, it think in terms of sort of a, a return on investment curve right um as you increase the density of photons like, like up until there's uh 
500 micromoles um, of density, so 500 micromoles of PPFD, um, the plant is really undersaturated. Um, at the point of 500 micromoles, you start to reach the point of saturation. And at that point, you start to hit sort of a flatter point on the curve, right? So the, the return is really steep up until 500. And if you're providing less than 500 micromoles, um, increasing lighting is really the most beneficial in that situation. Um, from 500 to 700 micromoles, um, the return increases, but at a diminishing rate. Um, by the time you get to 700, the, the return is really not worth sort of exceeding that. Um, you don't start to hit really diminishing actual returns until you cross over 1,000, though. So the safe operating zone is really anywhere from 500 to 1,000. Um, the, the sort of, so it's kind of a combination between plant biology and sort of economics when you really think about what the optimal point of, of lighting is, because we're, we're thinking about the amount that we're investing compared to sort of how much extra we gain. So it's a marginal analysis. And what that looks like from a grower's perspective, I guess, is like <clears throat> faster growing plants or larger growing plants. And with like mothers, it's an easy example. If you're trying to have a more productive mother, having it above that 500, where it's going to grow more shoots, you're going to get more cuts, where you can keep it alive under 500 very easily. It, if you don't have to be taking cuts all the time, it might be, like Doc was talking about earlier, more economic for you to run it at lower light and just let it get a little leggier and take cuts less often. So yeah. there's... And compared to other plants, uh, I think you might have said this in the past, um, Dr. Coco, but uh, is it pretty similar to plants of the same kind of photosynthetic type? Yes. Yeah. Most terrestrial plants are pretty similar in terms of sort of what densities of photons that they do best with. Um, yeah. And, and it's all based on sort of the combination of um, there's other things that can, that can harm plants if they don't have enough access to water, for example, um, or nutrients, or there's other things that can become limiting factors. But when we're just thinking about the relationship between carbon dioxide and light, there's a fairly standard relationship that at atmospheric levels of carbon dioxide, terrestrial plants are about the same with between 500 and 1,000 micromoles of, of PPFD. And also with that sort of steep incline as well correct yes yeah what's the question I'm not, about that? I mean, i'm not familiar on on across the the different varieties of, of um some of the plants but yeah for the c3 c4 plants that would be that would be true that makes sense there's another question there actually isn't because when you specified c3 c4 because uh, terrestrial means all plants of earth right <laughs> like all plants oh, it means on the surface of the earth i think oh, is what okay well, if even with that being said, I'm not a PhD in horticulture or anything or agriculture, but just from what I've seen of like leafy green production, they use a little bit less lighting and they can still produce very well. So don't those use a little bit less than 500 PPFD? Again, it depends on what your goal is. So we're talking about optimizing photosynthetic efficiency. Um, in certain types of commercial production, that's not the goal. The goal is, is different kinds of physiological developments or other things like that, especially when you're growing leafy green vegetables. Um, you may not want to be sort of maximizing the photosynthetic efficiency. You may be 
um, adjusting lighting for phys other physiological concerns. That makes sense. But I would say I would say we keep pretty close to that um, that sort of gradient. Um, I think that's the point that's trying to be made. There was a, a question in chat for, for you, Dr. Coco. It says, um, let me see, producers, this was from JGC in chat, and they're asking um, producers, are, they make the feeding charts. It's my understanding they base that off of a said light intensity, which I hadn't heard that, but what is a good rule of thumb to know how to dial down feeding if using a lower wattage? I, you know, I've heard this before. Um, the... <laughs> If you're fertigating or running hydroponically, um, the, the amount of fertilizers that we're gonna give to the plants are really determined primarily by electrical conductivity, not by the amount of photosynthesis that's occurring as a result of the amount of light. Um, so I, I've seen some YouTube videos and people talking about if you have a 600 watt light, you need less nutrients. And if you have a thousand watt light or things like that, um, I, I don't think that that's based on any actual um, science. Um, it, the, the sort of point there is the plants will take the nutrients that, that we can deliver within the EC burden that they can sort of support. Um, and that's largely true. Now, if you change the temperature or the humidity in the grow space, that's when you want to maybe start thinking about changing the, the electrical conductivity of your nutrients. And, you know, light may do that. So if you put a, a, a bigger light in the same size space, it may create more heat and more dryness, which actually means you should lower the electrical conductivity and provide less nutrients in the water because the plants are going to need to be moving more water through them. Um, so the idea that we would provide more nutrients in the water as the size of the light increased, I... I I don't think it's based on science and I can't imagine the theory that it, it sort of is based on other than thinking that nutrients become the limiting factor for photosynthesis, which is not the case. Um, it's gonna be carbon dioxide way before the nutrients that we're able to deliver is gonna limit them. Does anybody else have a take on that? Just to say that that's the kind of like holistic physiological outlook that I love to see. Um, in any kind of analysis in agriculture. So I think that like those kinds of fundamental things about understanding plant physiology, that's where that can be really useful for a cultivator. And yeah. that's why I like to talk about that kind of stuff when I talk about pests, because you can find some clever little ways to mitigate them sometimes. Where do you think the rumor about uh, cannabis being like a, a high light plant came from maybe like all the years of people cultivating indoors with like pumping high co2 and running tons of hps and it managing to produce high yields and that was sort of like their only focus for yeah of well it does really well under in um really dense light um with supplemental carbon dioxide um that was probably the most interesting findings from the the chandra studies was sort of the how efficient cannabis photosynthesis was when you got carbon dioxide up to about six or sorry 750 800 um, micromoles and and delivering 1500 um, micromoles of photosynthetic flux density um, 
the yeah that's sort of cannabis loves that and does really well um at, at that combination um again even when you're running that you don't need to provide additional nutrients to keep up with sort of the photosynthetic demands on nitrogen or, or even calcium um magnesium you you can the plant will still survive with all of that it's still going to be carbon dioxide and or photons that are limiting the photosynthesis but they were like, I mean, in terms of photosynthetic returns, that was the point of maximum efficiency. Um, and that's why a lot of growers choose to try to sort of match that to um, seal up the space to get up to, you know, 800 or even up to 1000 um, micromoles of carbon dioxide and run stronger lights. Now, when you step back and you think about the total returns to electricity in that setup, it becomes most more, much more expensive for most growers if they could otherwise get away with running a ventilated grow space. Um, because if you're sealing up the space, then you're gonna have to run into air conditioning, um, you're gonna have to run into dehumidification and other things that sort of blow those efficiency gains made from um, the lighting sort of out the door when you start using all that additional electricity to power additional equipment. So for home growers that can avoid dehumidification and air conditioning by running a ventilated grow space, we think it's much more cost efficient to set up there and sort of accept the limits of atmospheric carbon dioxide. So there's another question in chat. Um, shout out to Smiley's Garden, actually. Uh, he's a panel member on the Frugal Force with me. And he was asking you, Dr. Kokon, kind of the last topic, but he wanted to know, you know, photosynthesis is what drives nutrient use. So how can light not affect the amount of EC? That was his question. It doesn't really affect the amount of, um, it doesn't affect the amount of photosynthesis that's going on really. So assuming that you're still operating within the range of 500 to 1000 um, micromoles of PPFD, it doesn't matter if the 500 to 1,000 micromoles of PPFD are coming off of a 1,000 watt fixture or a 600 watt fixture, first of all. So, right, it's going to depend on the, the grow area. If you're thinking just about sort of the, the ratios between um, the 500 and the 1,000 and saying, you know, you're, you're doubling the amount of light, you're not actually doubling the amount of, of photosynthesis that the plant can use. It's using that first 500, like you can think of that as it using that at 100% of that first 500. And after that, it uses a smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller percentage of sort of the, the total light that you're providing for photosynthesis. So the difference in photosynthetic um, yield at 500 micromoles and you know 750 isn't nearly as big as the difference in, in photosynthetic potential between 500 and 250 going the other way. Um, so there is a difference. You are gonna be using a little bit more, but you're already providing enough nutrients that it's not gonna be the thing that becomes the limiting factor. Um, it's gonna be the carbon dioxide or the light until you get well above sort of the, the region that Chandra was studying. I think a lot of people don't have, like if you watched Bruce Bugby's video I recommended last week about maximizing cannabis yields, and he talks about like the factors that need to be kept ideal to get the best yield. A lot of people don't maybe have the right NER or the right amount of airflow or the yeah. right amount of water in the root zone. There's so many things to keep optimal. So they yeah. might think, oh, you know, I've got 
the too much light caused it to be hungry so i needed to add more nutrients but it's like really maybe you didn't water early enough maybe there needed to be more nutrients supplied in the root zone at the time that they weren't aware like we're not all perfect it's a pretty common i mean misconception about plant physiology that like nutrients build the body of the plant when it's really the carbon you know is taken in the atmosphere during photosynthesis right yeah they either think it's the building blocks like you say or they they think that it's the the energy um and yeah those are both wrong um the energy comes from the light and uh the building blocks come directly out of the air from the carbon dioxide in the air um so the nutrients are there only to support healthy photosynthetic function Um, And plants need access to nutrients in order to engage in photosynthesis, um, but they don't eat plant food. Um, And I really think that it's a terrible mistake that we ever called it plant food. Makes sense to me intuitively. I think also a lot of growers, um, newer growers, I should say, don't realize that they're underventilated. They're not bringing in enough fresh air, which brings in more carbon dioxide and I keep on quoting Bruce Bugby because he's one of the only scientific professors that has research that's recently posted, but he showed like a few different vials full of the amounts of like parts of nitrogen in the atmosphere, the amounts of parts of oxygen in the atmosphere. And then he broke down how much CO2 is in the atmosphere and it was much, much, much less. So even though it's at like that 400 uh, parts per million base, if your plants are in a grow room and they're eating that up because like they just talked about the light and the CO2 or the, the carbon is what's building the plant. If it's not being resupplied by enough fresh air coming in, that yep. plant's going to struggle. Even if Absolutely. like, you know, you've got that 500 PPFD to 700 or a thousand, you might say, Oh, well I'm at a thousand. I thought I'm, I'm safe. Well, your PPMs of CO2 might've dropped too low. And that yep. thousand is now a huge stressor because it's not getting enough CO2. And then if anything else, like maybe there's too much wind or, not enough water there's so many factors that you yeah. should just try and get it in that sort of goldilocks zone as much as you can yeah i totally agree with that so if you're running a sealed space you need to supplement your carbon dioxide and if you're running a, a ventilated space you need to have airflow during the lights on period um your fan should n- never go off during the lights on period because you're not just controlling temperature and um, relative humidity as Jack says, you're also doing air exchange, which brings in uh, fresh air, fresh carbon dioxide. Um, you don't need air exchange during the lights off period with cannabis. Um, and you don't need to supplement carbon dioxide during the lights off period with cannabis because it, cannabis plants will only take in uh, carbon dioxide when they're engaged in the lights on cycle of photosynthesis. However, it's important to uh, make sure you manage that climate because uh, if you're not exchanging your air, your RH might go crazy. Yes, yes. No, you still do need to run the exhaust. Uh, you know, usually it's for relative humidity. A lot of people just turn off their exhaust fans when the lights go off. Um, but during that lights off period, the plants don't continue to engage in photosynthesis, but they do continue to transpire. Um, and they will continue to produce humidity that, that you still need to deal with. Uh, absolutely. So there's really all three of those things that you need to sort of pay attention to when, when you're running a, a ventilated grow space. Um, most of the time growers leave their exhaust fans on when the lights are on anyways, because of temperature, but there may be growers, especially sort of who are in the cooler part of the year for, for some of our growers, some of our audience, 
Um, even if the temperature doesn't mandate that, um, running the, the air serve exchange in your grow space, um, carbon dioxide still could become an issue. I totally agree. I think it's often overlooked. I don't want to keep clamming on about it because I think uh, we, we've discussed it, but uh, it's a great point. Cool. Cool. Were there any other um, questions that people saw that came up in the, in the chat? I was going to say that the CO2 also, if you're doing a soil system, your soil will actually release CO2 in the atmosphere. And that can increase the uh, amount that's available to the plant as well. Um, and also when the light turns off and the plant isn't using uh, that CO2, it can build up. So it needs to be exhausted. Just a little tip, you know, for all the home growers out there. And for like a larger space, they make these sort of cool, I think it, I can't remember the name of the type of exhaust vent, but it's like a, a covered uh, thing that can pop open so you basically have a sealed room but when you want it to open up for like at night what Brandon was just talking about I think he mentioned with some of his living soils that the CO2 levels if he didn't vent it could get up over 3,000 parts per million which is like unsafe for humans to be inside there and like breathing like uh, so you definitely have to make sure to if you're going to be in the space uh, be diligent about monitoring the levels and uh, lowering them down if you're going to be in there yeah yeah, indeed. I, I mean, and for all of those reasons, I think that even getting into that world for, you know, startup growers, I, I mean, I think carbon dioxide is something that you could potentially play around with when you get to, you know, a, a, a much more experience with dialing in the rest of the aspects of the grow. Um, there are some benefits to be gained from it, but it's it's a more advanced technique. Sorry about well, that. You have to be aware of it if you're, if you're doing, uh, because if you're doing any type of system that's enclosed because the CO2 levels usually do typically increase when the lights go off because even in your uh, like cocoa media and the plant, the plants also have, you know, different cellular respirations and they'll release yes. uh, as well. So. so there was another question in chat, but I kind of answered it, but they were asking, um, Hold on, I gotta find it again. <laughs> JGC again asked if if one gives time to gas off chlorine but still has chloramines in their water source, is there an essential tea one should use in, in soil to replenish microbes? And I just suggested, you know, humic acids. Yeah. That's a go-to. Yeah. They they neutralize the chloramine and then it's basically like it, even if you have a good chunk of chloramine in your water, uh it's gonna neutralize it. I wanted to cover it, even though I answered, I wanted to cover it because it comes up quite often. And those caps I mentioned earlier, I think they're called like beveled caps for exhaust or flapper caps, depending on the style that you prefer. A lot of the, I actually, I, I remember seeing what you're talking about, Jack, with those, those vents that closed there. Um, I believe it was urban farmer, urban farmer, maybe on YouTube was using those when he built out his room. And uh, he said he sourced them from like, uh, people that build like uh you know when you develop your own film i can't think of the name of that room dark room when you're building your own dark rooms they use those same kind of filters so uh if you do i know I, I wish i remember what video it was but i know urban farmer covered this and he actually had a link to the actual vents he used so yeah they make them really for like greenhouses it. and stuff too to like exhaust especially during like light depth periods they even have ones that can like like you said for like dark rooms that won't let any light in which is a uh, really interesting stuff 
those ones you're talking about, we actually have in each one of our flower rooms, and that's for our CO2 dump. So they don't hardly ever open, but when they do, they, they'll dump quick. Okay, I saw a couple of, of questions. Um, somebody just asked about uh, oscillating. This was Asgard 420 filth. Um, asked about using a fixed fan in tent, or does it need to oscillate? Um, you know, you want airflow. There, there's sort of two things. You want air exchange with the grow space, which means you want to take the air and exchange it with new air on a fairly consistent basis. And that's usually done in a grow tent with an exhaust fan. Um, you also want air circulation within the grow space. And this question about fixed fans versus oscillating fans appears to be in relation to sort of the air movement within the grow space. Um, you can, a lot of growers can get away with a fixed fan. It depends on the size of your, your space and it depends on probably your, your relative humidity situation. Um, I have an oscillating fan that's often set to be not oscillating. So it, it depends on sort of the, the, the specific situation, I would say. But it's important to understand the difference between air movement and air exchange. And um, if you're really dialing in a grow space, you, you need both of those things. I have a few. I totally agree with that. You do need both. And uh, as far as the oscillating fan versus clip fan debate, I grow in a small tent and I think a lot of uh, home growers may as well. And I found that the oscillating clip-on fans for like the corners of the tent, not only just myself, but I've seen a lot of other growers have them either stop working or break. Some yeah. I've even seen catch fire, which is like, that's my <laughs> biggest fucking nightmare. Like as a grower, yeah. I would never want that to happen to somebody. So what I suggest is stick to those simple little six inch clip-on fans. If you're in a small tent, you can have like one above the canopy or one below the canopy or however many you need, depending on the size of your space. But for the floor fans, you can get those like tower fans that oscillate. And I noticed that those tend to have a good range. So the plants aren't ever getting hit too direct, even if you have it on like a higher level. And that will get the wind in the room oscillating enough that the clip fans can just do their straight trajectory. But in combination with the oscillating from the tower fan, you know, it with the gets the same effect on. I have something to say about those oscillating clip fans. Um, I have one. Um, nobody knows I have one. I haven't put it in my product guide. <laughs> um, so that might give you a, a, some sort of sense about my attitude about the, the oscillating clip on fan. Mine still works, but I haven't used it oscillating. I mean, it, it, I can see why it would stop working. Um, it does an all right job as a fixed sort of uh, corner fan, but yeah, it, it's not worth it. I agree with you. I think that, it, you know, in a four by four tent, one little clip fan um, that blows sort of across diagonally across the top of the canopy um, really does a lot for that angle. And I, I don't think you need to have that fan be oscillating back and forth, maybe in a larger grow space, but it kicks wind around on sort of off the, the opposing corner that circulates back around and you see all the leaves fluttering sort of around the tent. Um, I set it up just to sort of blow right across the top. And then, yeah, another fan down below that, that sort of blows up their skirts. Um, I don't have the big tower fan, but I could see the, the point of that. I think that it depends on, on again, your humidity um, issues. Really that the fan that blows up underneath is um, helpful when the relative humidity is is something that you're trying to manage. Um, if the relative humidity is not too high, then I think you can get away with just having the the canopy fan. 
Depends on the size of your space, though, the density of your grow. In the whole spirit of cheap home grow, I usually can get between $10 and $15. I can get a box fan, and that moves way more air than any clip fan I've ever used. And that's what I like to use in tents. I'll yeah, I just couldn't put one of those in before my poor tent. <laughs> yeah, I got a, I got a, a double, double the size of tent that you do. <laughs> Sorry. My grow space is a little bit bigger than that, and uh, I definitely – use box fans. I definitely don't have any uh, clip fans, but I have uh, 16 inch oscillating fans. That I like to keep in between the canopy and the, the actual light since I grow with the, you know, HID lights. And um, I think in a bigger growth space, which I grow in my, I believe my room is 16 by 11, but um, maybe 16 by 12. But yeah, when you're in a bigger growth space, I think air movement is very, very critical. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's important to note that even at like a young stage, a lot of people are afraid to put a little bit of wind on their plants, but I think it helps root development and build stronger plants and uh, get some growing a little bit quicker. I think if you have zero, I've seen people do side-by-sides that are like, oh, look at this plant that grew with no fan. And here's the plant that grew with the fan and it's significantly bigger and healthier and a thicker stalk and they pull it out and you can see the root mass is bigger. And that was the only factor that they changed. They were both like grown in a solo cup. Yeah. it depends on if you're really bending them over. I mean, you want to think about your your leaves also being your your solar reflectors, right? You're sort of, if you're making it hard for the plant to capture photons because the, the leaves are twisting around on themselves every time the fan passes over or just constantly sort of in a state like that. Um, but ruffling their feathers, I agree, it, it builds stronger seedlings. I think like plants. making the plants dance is a boogie brew quote, but... Uh, they talk about after they give a compost tea, the plants dance, but I think like the plants dance and just that, like you said, just a little light ruffle of the leaves as you see the canopy. They're not like flipping upside down. Sometimes uh, if you have an oscillating fan and they're a little younger, that's okay, but uh, not like constantly struggling. I think if you just get, you should be able to see a little bit of movement all around because if you don't, I think what is happening is you're developing microclimates. So if you see like that back corner of the tent, those plants that are just sitting still and all those leaves are sort of just sitting on top of each other, you can literally go and see uh, moisture build up underneath that happening. And uh, so that could be a big reason to keep that air movement going. Yeah, no, and the other thing to realize there is when you do air movement across the surface of the leaves like that, you can increase the the rate of transpiration. Um, And so there's a number of things to balance. You could potentially have uh, sort of provoke more transpiration than a really small plant could keep up with. That's kind of unlikely, but you want to be kind of aware of those issues as well. Um, the more air that moves across the surface of the leaf, you think about it just like if you were sweating and standing out in a dry breeze, you would sort of a lot more sweat would evaporate off of you um, than if you were standing in. It was just dry, but the air wasn't moving. Noah, the grower, talk us through what you're uh, looking at right now because uh, it's on the speaker view and we can't see it on the YouTube unless you talk. Oh, uh, well, can I change that? I think you may be able to, but Shane might still be hosting. I think I'm, tr- I'm trimming right now, and uh, this is a little GG4 here. I'm just doing some uh, basic stuff, and um, yeah, uh, I got some uh, some punch coming down here in a few seconds. I'm but I, I'm pulling down, and um, yeah, I'm happy with the results here for sure. With the um the fan thing too it's important if you're supplementing co2 to get that air mixed up um just like they were talking with transpiration and everything else around the leaves uh the leaves through their stomata that's where they're uptaking that co2 
and you know they can suck up all the co2 in their general area and if they're if it's real stagnant air and it's not moving more co2 even though you're enriching say it might not be able to get to that leaf very quickly so to to have an airflow to be able to refresh that around the leaf it's going to help you yeah. also i don't really like to have my fans blowing on my plants i know a lot of people do but i don't i i do a a what I call a funnel of air above, you know, but just like what Noah was saying between the light and the plant itself. And then also underneath the canopy. And I think if you get a nice little vortex going, the, the wind currents will travel through the canopy. You can see it like what you were talking with the fluttering of the leaves, but I don't really like direct air current on my plants if I can help it, especially in flower stage, because that's when you're going to start seeing your white hairs turning different colors, you know, prematurely turning brown and stuff like that. If it's too much of an airflow, um, so I just like to not even play, not even play with that to have a have a um, chance of that happening. Now, sometimes you know, if you plant stretch or something, they're going to get into the airflow, and that's where I really recommend the oscillating because then it's not really in one spot for too long, so it gives them a little bit of a break. But those are just the points I wanted to add on the airflow stuff. Well, yeah, and I was going to say that you know, if you're going to be using a fan that doesn't oscillate, then you definitely. I mean, you don't, you definitely don't want it blowing directly at any one particular plant because that plant is going to suffer. Um, it's just going to break that, uh, you know, that the, the, the little airspace behind around each of the leaves and, you know, create zero, zero RH for extended periods of time and they'll stress it out. And for anyone that is, I mean, maybe this contradicts a little bit what was being said earlier, but I got to be honest with you. I have, nearly 20 of those clip fans running in my garden and I've had them running close to 24 hours a day for over a year. Um, Is that the VivoSun oscillating ones? Both. I've tried a whole bunch. So I, I had the VivoSun uh, six inch oscillating yeah, and I, I kind of, I kind of migrated I, to be honest with you. So I did have some issues with those. I mean, for what it's worth, the VivoSun was great when I contacted them. So, I, I mean, I, I purchased like 10 of them and I ended up sending back like four or five. They refunded me. I did, and they didn't actually send them back. I actually just threw them out because they did stop working. So that's something, but they did uh, refund me. I Most of the fans now that are clip fans in my, my grower, the secret gardens, the monkey fans, um, which seem to be, uh, have built, uh, built a little bit better. And I mean, one testament to that is that the new VivoSun clip fans are now using the, I have to say, they're the exact same. Uh, it almost looks like they're made in the exact same factory now as the secret. They gardens, probably are. Right. Yeah. So um, all I'm saying is that, you know, so the thing about um, using uh, other fans that sit on the floors, I mean, for some people, at least for me, that real estate on the floor is really important. So that's one of the benefits of the clip bands. Although I do understand the concern that some people have with regards to uh, their quality or maybe longevity and, and maybe some of the safety if their wiring is not entirely uh, done properly. I just, all I can say is that for me, um, they, they, they do work in the grow. I run several of them um, in, in, uh, in the tent. So, but to Spartan's point, I do, I, so I do like the oscillating because it's not on any one particular, it doesn't focus the airflow on any one particular plant. And I do run it above the canopy. If you are going to run a stationary fan, then you'll want to try and create, it works better in larger growth spaces. But 
either linear airflow or like you said, the cyclone effect, which is the most effective. And I do have a fan that blows below the canopy. And mostly for that is because I run Rockwell, which is, um, I run two or three irrigation cycles a day. So it's constantly uh, got moisture. So the, uh, it breaks up the air below the canopy too. But I mean, there's lots of ways that you can play around with uh, um, the airflow. The other benefit of having a lot of airflow too is if you are running any type of HID that has radiant heat, then you know between the canopy and the light, it dissipates that heat a little bit. It's not as important with the with LEDs, but definitely with the HI, with the HIDs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, with the HIDs, you'll get a heat pocket in between the light and the, the canopy in your flower room. And um, yeah, you definitely need an oscillating fan up there, especially if you're running more than one HID. And then I recommend box fans like uh, Spartan was saying. I run, let's see here, one, two, three box fans uh, below the canopy to keep, just like Ken Ken was saying, keep that moisture down. Uh, powdery mildew is not something I like to tackle. So you, you make sure you have airflow. I'm a firm believer that, I mean, I guess you in theory could have too much airflow, but I mean, I'm a big fan of airflow. I think it's huge. And just like Jack was saying earlier, I think that a fan in your veg room, if you have a veg in the flower room is uh, a big deal too. So um, yeah, I, I think that the, the, the veg room, it makes the plants strong. It makes them vigorous. You're going to get some wind burn, but I think that it, it's, it's pretty necessary in my opinion. I don't know how much, like how many knots you would need of wind power for this to matter, but I've been curious to know and think about how all the aspects of uh, cultivation are important to IPM. And in this case, like air, like for example, um, not that you like, not that you'd want to let it get to this point. And hopefully if you have good preventative measures, you wouldn't, but like spider mites, russet mites, aphids, most insects fly. It's one of their biggest traits because they were the first ones to do it um, as animals. And so lots of these organisms, they either fly themselves or can influence their, uh, movement in the atmosphere, even if they don't have wings. Um, and I'm, I'm curious how, like, the use of fans could be used in sort of an ablative way or some sort of, like, uh, reducing the chances of them, like, getting onto the leaves or something like this. Above the, you know, that one above the, above the soil level, but below the canopy level, I want a, a strong as stream as I can right there. Cause that will blow fungus gnats to the fucking wall and smash them. <laughs> and it keeps that very weak flyers. This is true. That's actually one of the first ones I was thinking about. And the more the topsoil being dry, it prevents them from that moist, the area that they like being in. And I think that might be one of the reasons if you've ever seen my grow setup, it's tiny, but I have a shit ton of fans running. And I never have deal issues with pests. And I think it might be because they have a very difficult time trying to scale my plants while there's a bunch of fucking wind going on everywhere. But with the point that CanCan made earlier with the uh, monkey fan being a little more durable, I did use the Vivo Sun. And they did the same with me with the refund when mine broke. Um, but I will say I will take some personal accountability because I have a small tent and I have a little bit of negative pressure. So if you have a tent where you're exhausting pretty strong and you have a negative pressure and you have that oscillating, I think the reason mine broke is because it was hitting the walls of a tent that were being sucked in. So yeah. it couldn't oscillate its full range of motion. And so I don't want to well, dislike resistance there. Yeah. It did the same thing in my tent. That was one of the reasons I stopped having it oscillate. Um, it was, it was completing its sort of cycle but it was having to push the tent out of the way at either end of the cycle. Right. 
Um, yeah. And that pushing the tent out of the way certainly put extra strain on the gears and the motor that was driving the oscillation. It was way too much. And mine ended up like actually like snapping when I went to go adjust it. But it was uh, still good enough to get through the end of my cycle before I got like a new fan to replace it. I just used yeah. it as a stationary fan. And I pointed it into the wall because it's actually a pretty strong uh, fan. If it was just stationary, it'd be way too strong to hit the plant. So I pointed it into the wall and then it sort of bounced off the wall and then hit the plants. But yep. what I found was... Um, Funny thing about that, it's level two is actually the slower speed than level one because I had it set to level one, hoping that it'd be like slow enough to not affect the plants. It was a little too strong. And that plant, there was three of the same uh, plant grown from seed. So it could have been phenotype difference, but I think that it was wind stress in this case. The far right plant that got hammered by wind, the last two weeks, it started to like get really crisped up on the leaves. And I was a little pissed, didn't take as many pictures of it, didn't show it off as much. But when I went to uh, Lady Greenstock, trimmed it it had 5.5 grams of keef off the trim where the center plant that was in like the pretty ideal condition had four and the plant on the far left, which had the weakest airflow um, and had the same lighting as the other three plants only produced three grams of keef or uh, from. So I think that the wind stress and at least for this cultivar increased the amount of resin production, at least on the leaf material. Interesting. Um, one thing um, with the, I know we were talking about airflow between the light and the canopy, that's for the HIDs, but um, if, if you can get enough airflow to the canopy, if you're running a, uh, LEDs, you actually may want to run a fan above the LED just because LEDs, the heat doesn't, it doesn't go down from the light, it, it actually radiates up. Mm. So it's a good way to, uh, one, eliminate that heat pocket that's above the LEDs. And in most cases, additional heat in a grow tent is actually beneficial um, with the LEDs because you want to run a higher temp. So you can actually use that heat above there if you can blow it with a fan. Um, and to Matt's question, I, I wish I remember the lady's name so I could give her credit and which podcast was I listened to. But uh, it isn't specific to cannabis, but I think that they said um, if you are measuring the amount of airflow, it was one to two uh, meters per second was the velocity that was ideal. But I, the velocity isn't really what's as important as distribution. So, you know, um, making sure it, that you can distribute the airflow as evenly as you can all across your entire canopy is more important than the amount of velocity. Now, obviously you'll need a certain amount of velocity to be able to do that, but uh, that's why, uh, again, I can't remember the show, but they were talking about in larger grow rooms, they would run those socks with uh, uh, individual holes so that it spread out the airflow across the, across the room. But in the grow tent, like I said, if you have enough air just to jostle the, the leaves above the canopy and then something below, you should be fine. There's a new LED producer that when you buy one of their lights, they actually send you a free wind sensor, which is, uh, I'm curious to see anybody who gets those LEDs, um, what measurements they'll be getting out of that and how they're going to implement it in their grows. Because uh, if a bunch of people buy that product, then a bunch of people will have that sensor and we'll have a lot more data on what ideal airflow is, at least in uh, certain people's cultivation setting, which I think will be interesting. And what you were talking about with the um, LEDs and heat, 
now it's dispersed. I really personally prefer that and love that. Like I use cobs, I have giant heat sinks and the heat drifts right off the top of the light. And my carbon filter sits right next to where my light is in the room and exhausts that heat out of the room. And I have my exhaust set up so I can turn it up or down and manage the heat that way. So it's a really convenient way to keep the heat away from your plants and, and manage the grow space in the room. Uh, Smot Poker asked in the chat, why the difference in temperature between LED and HID? And the only way that I can simply say that is uh, a lot of HID lights have light in the infrared heat range, which is 800 nanometers or greater. There's a giant spike in HIDs and that doesn't translate to any light. It actually just becomes pure heat where LEDs do not have that. So if you get a laser temperature thermometer, that'll actually give you a, an accurate temperature reading of the room. And uh, you want to get that like around like 81, 82 for the leaf temp. And yeah. LEDs don't have as much of a drastic change uh, from the room temp to the leaf temp where the HIDs have a little bit more of a warming effect. And Migro's done some testing where he shows with a FLIR camera where the LEDs heat is distributed in the tent versus where HID is. Uh, his CMH versus LED showed that off really well. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that question there. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, the easiest way I kind of explain that is the HIDs will raise the leaf temperatures through uh, the radiant heat from the light. So you usually want to run a lower ambient temperature to keep the leaf temperatures down, whereas LEDs won't heat up the leaf temperature. So you need to rely on the ambient temperature of the room to raise the leaf temperatures to the levels uh, that you want them at. So that's why you run higher temps and it's around in the low 80s for LEDs that you want the ambient temperature um, from between 82 and 85. I mean, obviously which one works for you, you'll have to take a, a laser to the to leaf temperatures, but that's generally the area you want to be running with the LEDs versus um, HIDs where you're, you most likely want to be more around 77, 79, um, Fahrenheit. I got a couple of things. Yeah, I I agree with, with what you're saying. I think it's helpful to just sort of suggest that photosynthesis is optimized at the low eighties, 82, 83, um, Fahrenheit. Um, and so we want to be there for the leaf temperatures, whether you're under HID lights or whether you're under LED lights. Um, the fact that heat is better distributed in an LED grow um, offers LEDs uh, one sort of dimension of potential performance um, over HID lights because it's really only the leaves that are right at the canopy in an HID grow that are at the optimal temperature, assuming that you are optimized for temperature. Um, leaves that are further from the canopy are going to be at a cooler temperature and operating at sort of suboptimal photosynthesis. Um, whereas in an LED grow, because you're setting the optimal photosynthetic temperature based on ambient air temperature, all leaves can be in the correct temperature for maximum photosynthesis, regardless of whether they're sort of directly under the lights or not. So that's one sort of dimension just in terms of the, the physical differences in how the lights are set up that, that leads LEDs to have a potential advantage. Now, I don't know if you guys want to all get into it, but I thought this was an excellent question. At least it's always interesting to hear everybody's opinion. And um, shout out to John Reefer, which is a great name, in chat. And they were asking, what's your preferred method of checking when a plant's ready for harvest? You know, the trichome check, pistols, bud feel. When you check trichomes, where should you check? 
kind of a loaded question, I think, but uh, where which trichome should you check? Is that the question? Yeah, like I think they're trying to say, yeah. you know, don't check the trichomes on the sugar leaves because you're not yeah. smoking that. Well, yeah, and the trichomes on the sugar leaves, if you can sh see this in your own grow, they change a couple of weeks before the trichomes on the calyxes will change. Um, they can provide an indication about when you should start, start checking the trichomes on, on the, the calyxes or the bracts, but um, they don't tell you sort of anything about really when it would be best to harvest, I would argue. Um, one of the tips that, that I give growers often is to cut a sample of the, the bud off. So you want to, to look at an actual bud, a calyx or a brack, um, and look at the, the trichomes on that. And it's so much easier to do that on a table under a microscope than it is to try to hold the microscope up to the plant. Yeah. Or you can use a macro lens and just take pictures. But uh, I like, I think my, my answer to that question is everything. I take all of those things into consideration. I don't, not one of those. If I see one thing, one indication, it doesn't mean I'm going to harvest. There's no end all be all. Um, if I see, well, I guess I'll take that back. If I see a lot of dark trichomes, I will harvest if I, I'll for sure harvest because I don't want a ton of dark trichomes. But uh, usually, you know, the biggest indication on when, when is the harvest is experience, experience with that plant. The more you grow it and the different times that you've harvested, you'll know which one, where you like it the most. You know what I mean? And so um, experiment until you find where you think is the best. And, and as you grow that plant, the more you grow that plant, you will recognize just by looking at it, just like you recognize your own kids by sight when they're ready. So that's, that's my answer. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. agree, I agree with that. That. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Noah, because I know you've got a, a few cuts that you've run over and over and over. And I bet you, you could give me like a day, like what's the orange right. blossoms day that it's right. best at? Not even the week. And like, I was what's just going to say, day? I, exactly. And I was just going to echo what Spartan's saying. It's experience. And, you know, that's a hard thing to tell a new grower, but it's experienced with the, especially when you're running clones, it's experienced with that plant. Um, you'll learn, you know what I mean? And it, you can just tell by different factors. Obviously the trichomes, obviously if you're, you know, you're flushing like I do, you'll, you'll be able to tell by the, the fall effect, but there's different things. And you just, it just goes by it's exactly, it gets down to a date and you just get a feel for it. And sometimes I'll even vary because it is a plant. It, you know, you can grow the exact same plant and it'll have different, you know, outcomes sometimes, but you can just tell by looking at it with experience. That's, that's really what I go off of. Roughly, how long do you take purple punch? Because I know that's a pretty common one a lot of people grow. Good question. Um, I, I usually will take um, right around 55 to 60 days, depending, you know, like this one right now, I pulled it 55. Also, uh, you know, availability of stuff in my jars will play a factor. I'll take some bottom, some bottom nugs, but I have ran into problems sometimes with that you can get stressed. I've also experimented with just taking the tops off leaving the bottoms to get a little bit of light so i've experimented with the different things but i'll say i think punch is pretty much square in that eight week range see i, I don't know uh, your environment might be better dialed than my homies but they like to push it like nine or ten and maybe it's just because they like the uh more soporific effects because some people complain if you take punch punch looks like it's ready at like week six or seven sometimes it's, it's really frosty beautiful amazing smelling but but like Spartan mentioned earlier, um, and you mentioned just now, that like once you get to know a cultivar, if you cut it that soon, it, it'll be a little bit light on the weight. The buzz isn't going to be really what most people are looking for. So letting it run to at least eight and as high as like mid nine or even 10 weeks, some people let it go, uh, I think is good for that. And I, I couldn't agree more with both of what you guys just said. Like I don't go just on trichomes. Like some people want to chop as soon as they see that first amber trichome. 
Um, some stuff, if I really don't want it to be sedative at all, I'll try and take it a little bit earlier. But um, typically, I don't really care if I see a few amber trichomes here and there. I'm looking for that fade as well as uh, mostly milky, at least. So I do think that the clear versus milky trichome has a distinctly different effect, at least in my personal experiences. I've done nine weeks on punch. And it, it, it does help out sometimes. It just depends on the personal preference. It per, depends on also, I think it can depend sometimes on the size of the plant. So with the size of the container, there's different factors into it. You just learn with experiments. And that is one of the advantages I feel of having a plant that you really, really love that you clone, you get it dialed in even more. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people get stuck on the trichome thing and it's a great indication, but I mean, the plant a week a week's difference or two weeks difference can completely I mean can change flavors what flavors are more prominent and, and that's really what I'm chasing flavors that's what I'll be honest I'm chasing flavors when when I'm home growing so for me my my decision is where do I like that plant so for a certain plant that might be I take it eight weeks for another plant I might take it 10 11 weeks I don't care I'll take it as long as I need to take it to get to the result that I want and I'll take a plant and, and do multiple harvests and try to figure out where that is for each plant and take notes because I'm old and getting old and I can't <laughs> remember things. So I write it all down. It's great to have notes. Can can, I think it sounded like you had something there too. Uh, well, yeah, I just, I, you know, it's, it's something that is so subjective because truth is um, so much of it depends on, your setup and you know your your growing style it can literally impact uh when you know when the uh, the how quickly the the flowers ripen um which is one like noah said one of the benefits of having mother plants but not everybody has that option sometimes people are all growing from seed so if you want a bit of a as close to a systematic way uh, I, there's like everyone else has already said, you got to take a lot of things into consideration. I think the first thing you can take in consideration if you're growing from a reputable breeder, first thing is, uh, as, as a baseline is, you know, they'll tell you what the flowering time is. Now, that's not, you know, that, that that's not set in stone, but it gives you an idea, and it gives you an idea in their ideal conditions, and that's why I say it depends on what your setup is. So, you can use that as a, as a baseline, and then you know, so let's say uh, the breeder says it's a eight-week strain. Well, then you'll know that around that time period, you'll want to have to start checking other things. And I think the next thing I probably look at would be uh, the this stigma. So I I, um, I take a look at that and uh, or what people, uh, as Jack's corrected me before, what people call, call the pistols. So you'll start to see them ambering, curling up as it starts to mature and as it starts to ripen. Generally, uh, I, I start looking at the trichomes after 80% or so of those, uh, of those pistols or stigma have started to amber or brown. Um, that's, not, that's obviously cultivar dependent because I've definitely seen cultivars where it just keeps shooting uh, new white pistols. So you'll have to know your cultivar, but it's a good indicator. So around, again, so back to the example, if it if the breeder says it's around eight weeks, you'll watch those uh, those pistols, and then you'll want to take start taking a look at, if you can, the trichomes. And you know, the question there was which, where do you look? Uh, I think the most important thing is to make sure that you look at uh, the bracts or to look at the actual buds and not the sugar leaves. Sugar leaves will almost always amber 
uh, in my experience, a couple of weeks before anything on the flowers. So uh, you'll want to make sure you take a look at the buds. I do, for me, I look at the, um, I look at all, I look at the top colas and then I look at uh, some of the more intermediate ones in the middle, just so I can get a good understanding of uh, how many, of the, you know, how many of those trichomes are turning cloudy. And uh, um, for me, I like to, I like to harvest when I start to see um, the trichomes start to go amber. So maybe about five or 10%, just because I don't want to, I don't want it to over ripen. So um, those are the kind of things that you can look up and, you know, look at in order. And it's not, again, it's cultivar dependent. There are going to be some, maybe more of the sativa leaning strains that don't amber as much. So you yeah. just have to know from your experience um, growing that plant. But like I said, that's tough when you're growing autoflowers all from seed or if you're growing all of your photos from seed. So you'll just have to kind of use your best judgment. Yeah, no, I agree with almost everything everybody said. It sounds like we're all sort of harvesting in a, in a similar way. The only thing that I would add is I definitely recognize the difference between translucent and opaque amber trichomes. I'm not, uh, I, I want the translucent amber so that they sort of start to turn rusty color. Um, but when they go really opaque amber is when there's no more cannabis synthesis, uh, cannabinoid synthesis going on. Um, so when I see those opaque amber trichomes, I'll sort of spring into action. Um, but if I'm seeing sort of a, a gradual spread of the opaque amber, I'm, I'm kind of usually fine with that. But it definitely depends on what I'm going for with the strain. And I grow sativas with sort of a different, a different standard and a different protocol. And I just um, want to stress to the new yeah. grower that all of these trichomes, the... Um, stigma, all these things kind of um, have their own maturation rate where they're not all maturing at the same exact rates or they're not formed all at the same time. So they all mature differently. So you're trying to go in for an average this whole time. There's no like, oh, all of them mature at the same time. So it's easy. Let's just watch the color change and take them out. No, it's, it's not really like that. You're trying to take an average. So don't look at like one bud and making a, making a judgment on just the whole plan off of that one bud. Try to take an average, get at least, you know, the more sample sizes, the better, but you know, three, four, five, whatever. Um, and make like a, uh, like an average, you know, you want the average because they're all going to be different, different stages. That's another a great note. Point, Spartan, because I think so many times growers are like, but this one's Amber and this one's still clear and which one counts and way over here. It's a, yeah, no, it, it, it's never as simple as it sounds like it's going to be until you do it either. So you're definitely gonna gonna see, you know, a, a wide range of trichomes on almost any plant. It's very rare that like all the trichomes will look good to harvest. And another Sorry, thing, like, last... uh, go ahead, King. Sorry, uh, oh, I was just gonna say for, you know, for most of us, we're, we're avid growers. I think the one thing I can also advise is, you know, don't be so set in your ways because I just think that the science is going to change as we go forward and we're going to learn a lot more. And as we get more information as to when each of the various cannabinoids, uh, you know, are fully expressed themselves. And, you know, as we learn about more cannabinoids that we're going after, you know, we might find that harvesting at different times brings out certain cannabinoids for certain reasons. And that may change when people decide is best to harvest for them, depending on what they're after in the plant. So, you know, it, it'll be exciting to kind of see when, you know, when those 
studies and when that data and when that science comes out, because then we'll be able to, um, you know, tailor our harvest time specifically for our cultivars and our own specific grows and our own needs. Yeah, I agree That's a great that. point, Ken Ken. Uh, one of my buddies abolished farms over at uh, Michigan Bros Grow Show, and he also does the Frugal Force, grew a one-to-one -one with uh, Miss Cantaloupe that was uh, called Babel. And for one reason or another, they grew it out like their typical full run. And they really liked it. It was good. But the next run, they had to chop it like several weeks early, like two weeks early, like in the day, mid 50s, when they took it like 60 or 70 the first time. And they were like a little bit bummed and worried um, that it wasn't going to be as good. And then they ended up finding out that it was like even more pronounced orange flavors and that the highs were much better for Miss C. So I think you're totally right with that, Can Can. Once testing becomes more affordable, people have an idea of what works best for them and what ratios and what harvest times work best for the plants. Uh, that's going to be really insightful for a lot of people. Yeah, for sure. Because like we already know, CBD and THC, if you have a plant that's got them both, you can kind of manipulate those levels like a one-to-one -one you're talking by harvest window. So, I, I, you know, by that earlier harvest time, the CBD, I mean, we already know this, that the CBD is synthesized first. So they probably got higher CBD levels in that. And I, that's going to bring inflammation. I think, isn't CBD really good for inflammation or am I thinking THC? They're, they're both actually effective, but uh, CBD is higher earlier in the one-to-one -one, like you were talking about. And another thing I wanted to say is it's sort of like if you've ever uh, cooked bacon or a lot of different things like eggs in a, a pan, when you pull it off the pan, it continues to cook in that pan because it's hot. Even when you dump it onto a plate, it'll cook for another minute or two. And with the plant, I, uh, especially when I was growing under HID lights, occasionally the tops of the plant, the pistols or stigmas or hairs, whatever you want to call them, they would stay white on the top, but the shoulders and the middles and the bottoms and the nugs would be all orange and ambered out. I'm like, why aren't these tops finishing up? And it was usually because heat or light stress or whatever. But after I chopped and harvested and dried and cured, even those tops that were fully white hairs had sort of like that bacon in the pan continued to develop and cook and they became orange over time. So even though they weren't as developed of like a dark orange, it was more of like a lighter orange. Um, I noticed that with a specific cultivar, Platinum Yeti, it stretched a lot more than the other plants in the room. It was the closest to the light, but even though uh, I chopped what I thought was early because the signals were still pretty white, it ended up being super sedative and it was even more ripe than I would have liked it actually. So if I ever grow it again, I would take it earlier. And uh, even with the stigmas being white, I think it could be done. And uh, Sour Diesel Tangy, shout out to him. He grew a cultivar like that where people were like, dude, you chopped it too early. And he's like, I've grown this a bunch of times and I just like the effects earlier. So it's like, that's where they wanted it. Yeah. Also, you should always, go ahead, you go should ahead, always go ahead. be growing for, uh, for, for taste, for flavor, like Spartan said earlier. I just wanted to second that. That's, that's what I think to me, the goal is, I mean, obviously there's THC and yield and everything else, but I'm a big guy who grows for taste myself. For flavor. I enjoy the flavor, but for me, it's all about the medical effect. Like uh, two cultivars I have in particular, like one I have just for sleep. Sure. I love the flavor. It's got a cherry gas and maybe that's why it helps me or whatever. I love the flavor, but I would not use it if it didn't, did not help me sleep. So uh, I think it's, it's great to get the best flavor you can, but also uh, for the medical people out there, uh, important to consider the actual effects. It's actually yeah, how I, I think keep most of my cultivars. I, I, the effect will give me, uh, that'll be a keeper. And then I I'm only keeping it temporarily until I can find something that gives me the same effect with a better flavor. <laughs> you see what I mean? Yep, so hey, I'm, I'm still chasing that flavor. And I've got my I think two Josh keepers. Colbert in the chat, uh, you know, mentioned and said, I remember being so scared to harvest early. Look, when you don't be, you know, don't make harvest so stressful 
I mean, you know, if you harvest a little early, okay, maybe, you know, maybe you might get a little bit lower cannabinoid levels of certain cannabinoids. Your yield might suffer a little bit, but you're not going to ruin the flower. You know what I mean? If you harvest early, you harvest early and you maybe you'll know for next time you might wait uh, a little bit longer. To be honest with you, for some people, depending on their environment, harvesting early might be better for them because I feel that sometimes if people wait too long, you're giving a much larger window for issues to start to come in. Uh, Like why be afraid to harvest early when if you waited another week or two, then you got botrytis, you lost your entire harvest. So, you know, don't be afraid to harvest early. It's a shorter window and less chance of any issues or, or pests or pathogens, you know, attacking. It's just one of the benefit, you know, other benefits. Don't be afraid. Just harvest and, just, you know, adjust well, if you need back to. a little bit on that. I think new growers are much more likely to harvest early than they are to harvest too late. Um, I, you know, I deal with new growers almost every day that are asking if they can, if it's time to harvest. And it's almost always like, you know, wait another two weeks um, when you see the pictures of their plants. So um, what you consider to be harvesting early, I think, is maybe different than what a brand new grower is like looking at their freshly plumped buds and being like, okay, is it time yet? Is it time yet? And I think that, you know, um, waiting until you're at least into the beginning of the, the harvest window is important. Um, and new growers can harvest sort of way too early if they get a little bit too uh, excited about it. Yeah, just, yeah, you're, just... yeah, yeah, you're 100% right with that. That's the common thing. Sorry, I, I, you know, but if you're sticking around that time frame that the breather suggests, and yeah, you know. yeah, that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I would say about that is it's helpful to know if the breeder is using flowering days or flip days. Um, and I'm definitely aware of, of different breeders that count flowering days in different ways. So whether they're, you know, counting them from the, the first floral development on the plant, which is about usually a week after the flip to 12-12 um, lighting, or whether they're counting that flowering period from the flip to 12-12 lighting. Um, the other thing we should probably mention is the timelines for auto flowers are the complete grow cycle, um, not from the start of flowering. So when they tell you it's like- But hey, well, some of them actually do count from when it starts flowering, which I think is bullshit personally. I've seen some- I can't think of the actual breeder off the top of my head, but I've seen people really upset because they're like, I thought this was going to be on 60 or 70 days. And then if you add, just add 21 or 25 days or whatever typical veg is, the plant finishes right on time. So I think there are some unscrupulous breeders out there. So be wary through a reputable breeder. Strains with shorter flowering periods sell better than strains with longer flowering periods. Um, so it's a marketing strategy to try to make the flowering period appear shorter than it is. But I still agree with Can Can's point that if you're around that window, you're going to be pretty safe to, to harvest. I, I usually, though, do recommend, you know, wait a couple weeks. Um, if you're worried about mold, though, if you're worried about bud rot, um, yeah, go ahead and harvest at that point. It's far better to harvest a little bit early than to, to lose everything or to lose the bud rot. Um, the other thing, I, I don't know if Matt has anything to say about this, but um, I'm not, <laughs> now I hesitate because I'm wondering what Matt's going to say, but um, bud rot isn't, but botrytis is not toxic to humans. It's not attractive to humans. 
Um, it certainly lowers the, the perceived quality and value of the, the cannabis, um, but it doesn't render it dangerous. Um, so you can, when you're harvesting it and you notice bud rot, you can simply remove the, the portions that are affected um, and save the, the remaining unaffected tissue. Do you have anything to, to correct me on there, Matt? It's a good question. Honestly, it's hard to because I don't think so. Lots of fun fungi, a lot of a uh, lot of molds and that sort of a thing. They're plant pathogens. Uh, they produce like mycotoxins. But what like it's kind of like when you talk about light and a bunch of other things. What what different people you know experts in their field of chemistry or biology call a mycotoxin, don't call a mycotoxin is a little bit different. Um, and our research on which there are some that are very toxic, right? But we don't really know all, like comprehensively what makes what. So botrytis is, falls under that category of certainly we know it makes mycotoxins that make its infection easier and that sort of a thing. Um, but you're but like it's also systemic. So a lot of botrytis uh, species are systemic. Uh, they can right, and I imagine that there's tons of botrytis that's that's non-symptomatic, or at least that the symptoms aren't readily apparent. So by the time that you're harvesting, it may be inside the plant and you're not aware of it. Would you agree with that? Or do you think it would become symptomatic as soon as the infection was present? Well, that's the thing about Botrytis. Uh, uh, in, in the plants, that's, there's at least 50 plants, species that have been shown to have this happen where Botrytis can, be, can like lay dormant, kind of like an endophyte for a prolonged period of time with asymptomatically, and then especially when the plants bolt, especially when the reproductive tissue, which Botrytis has a lot of associations with, um, then that will uh, start to happen more often in those cases. It's also possible to transmit vertically through seed, um, which is, you know, at least in some plants. So, but I guess- also, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'll just say that my, my, my opinion on that is that, um, we kind of don't know totally, but I would imagine that if you do remove the places where you're seeing the actual mold growth, you're probably getting a lot of it out and possibly even most of it. But, you know, uh, but then it's also another question of like, how does the pyrolization of the, of that like lower content matter, like versus like the ash and smoke that you might be inhaling or whatever. Um, a lot of the molds do live through flame heat. And I will say this as far as personal experience with like smoking bud that was moldy unintentionally from cookies, uh, fuck cookies in Los Angeles and burner because they've sold not just myself or friends, lots of people, but that somehow passed testing, but was covered in powdery mildew. And I know it's a little bit different than Bortritis, but uh, because it passed testing, I didn't like scrutinize the cannabis as much as I would if I like got it from a friend or group myself. And so assumed it was safe, consumed it myself, and I didn't have horrible effects, but Lady Greenstock got horrible headaches and began vomiting and she was sick for a few days. And after inspecting the remaining cannabis in the bag, there was visual spots of powdery mildew. So I'm not sure about botrytis. I will clarify that. I'm not talking about any kind of mold or other growth that's growing on your buds. There, There is dangers in that. And that may be something that happened after harvest. It sounds like if it had passed testing, would you agree with that, Jack? Like I think perhaps in their packaging, but then that falls on them still because like... Oh, it definitely falls packaging. on them. I'm just wondering how it passed. I mean, it seems like it might have been infected after the testing. That's all. They're I vertically integrated, which is like a little bit upsetting because they have growers, they have distributors, they have dispensaries. So they have 
all access to the points in the supply chain, which is technically not even legal in California, but a bunch of people have figured out how to do it. That aside, they've had responsibility from it when it was grown, when it was transported, when it was tested. They had all steps of the chain and it ended up in their dispensaries in a bag. Yeah. And whatever climate they kept it at was not appropriate. And in that bag, somehow it developed mold versus like Petraeus. When we consider the fact that Petraeus is systemic and also with powdery mildew, I think it's, it's at least I've seen more research on powdery mildew mycotoxins than Petraeus personally. Yeah. And, you know, we do, people might bring this up that like, we have like the noble rot with uh, grapes and Petraeus sized wine, but they still like filter, um, that out like the 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 what's the word i'm looking for um i still think it's generally considered safe though i agree with you that it's one of those things that hasn't been fully tested but i don't know what the word you're looking is i wouldn't give it to a person with a compromised immune system because i've seen people in california specifically who before any of the mold and uh, fungi testing started going about who had compromised immune systems, ingested cannabis through smoking or vaporizing, and then their lungs got infected with certain things that ended up leading to their death. So the cannabis didn't kill them, but the actual mold killed them. Right. And that's extremely unfortunate. And I think like that even, more research has to be done. Even if you killed, like, so like, for example, even if you use like some of these um, ultraviolet radiation devices to like kill the mold, you know, the, the question, it's like moldy bread. Like if you were to cut out the mold, of the um of the bread or whatever and especially with aspergillus it's very different from like these like plant pathogens that we're talking about so maybe this is not a great equivocation but like those the like mycelia is still going through that bread so just because you cut out the parts where you can see the reproductive sporulation it doesn't mean or like other food groups in that matter so like even if you were to kill them the compounds that they produce might still be there, right? So that's kind of the main um, sort of point of contention. Well, and even if there's no direct like contact or visible contact, like the other day I walked through a pile of wood chips and there were some mushrooms growing around. And then when I walked through uh, a client's front yard a few days later, that same mushroom sprung up and none of us stepped on the mushrooms or in them, but we were in that area where the spores were. And uh, I just found it kind of interesting to see it transfer even with uh, no visible contact. Epidemiology. I wanted to go, I actually wrote it down because it's funny. I listen to these back when I'm at work and I'll be like, man, I should have said this. I should have said that. I got too high and I didn't say it. So now I'm starting to write shit down when I remember it or when I say it so that I don't forget to say it. But you know, when we were talking about the harvest window and we're saying, well, if you want to harvest early, I wanted to um, say that if that happens, if, if you, if you test it and you harvest early and you actually like it better, just remember next time to uh, adjust your nutrition too, because you're going to want to run out of nutrition at, in the new time. Um, when you, when you harvest early, it might be that um, it might be a little harsh smoke possibly. So if that's the case, you can fix the harshness with um, adjusting your nutrition. You want your plant to kind of run out of nutrition by the end. So if your end is two, three weeks earlier than you expected, you might still have some nutrition there. Also with that uh, harvesting early concept, I don't think anybody covered, but growing outdoors, if there's a huge hailstorm or a huge rainstorm that's yeah. coming, that might be a reason that you're just like, well, like Kink I mentioned earlier, if you're going to end up with all bud rot and all PM because the rain's going to come or the, the hail's going to come and kill your whole crop, you don't really got a choice. You're going to chop it down. But with that being said, there's a guy, me and Gene from Mendocino, who's hooked up uh, Kyle Breeder and Russ Brandon with some seeds on the panel. So don't mind giving him a little bit of love. He has shown posts where a lot of people in Mendo and Humboldt, they get rains 
fairly late into flower up there. Sometimes they're light and a lot of growers sort of what he calls like panic chop. So even though uh, that rain might be something that the plant can live through, some cultivars are better and maybe he just has good genetics that are suited for his environment so he can get away with letting it rain on him a few times mid to late flower and having them finish with no or limited bud rot. Um, it's an interesting concept and I would say definitely get familiar with your local uh, you know, weather and everything like that because it might force you to grow certain cultivars that finish before a seasonal rain that comes or a seasonal hail that comes. If you want to know what the weather forecast is, ask a farmer. I mean, when you really get into farming, um, yeah, paying attention to that. And this is something that, that's true. The point that Jack's making affects farmers of, of other kinds of crops as well that need to harvest around inclement weather or need to harvest be before a frost or other things like that. So um, yeah, you need to, if you're an outdoor grower, you need to be really on top of the weather. That's definitely true. And, uh, you know, in here in San Diego, like next week, I know that there's a forecast for rain uh, multiple days, and that's going to affect like mold, that's going to affect um, ingress of insects and arthropods and other sorts of things, um, both stimulating it and reducing it for those that are flying and that kind of a thing. So all of it's sort of connected in that way. Mm hmm. Well, you know, a question came up, uh, it's been a while ago now, but I, I wrote it down. Um, so I wanted to get back to this. JGC um, asked me about um, doing dry amendment in cocoa um, as opposed to fertigating. And I, my, my answer to that is, I think um, fertigation offers a number of advantages um, over dry amendment. Um, and it's easier to control in cocoa. Um, it really is what sort of unlocks the, the, the potential of cocoa. In dry amendment, you, you generally run um, with a lower with a lower water um, saturation point. Um, you get a lot less runoff, if any. Um, and cocoa really has the best air to water ratio when it's pretty close to or at field capacity. Um, it's also makes it so much easier to control the nutrient element ratio when you're fertigating. So I think that sort of the big advantage of growing in cocoa is that it allows high frequency fertigation and high frequency fertigation is sort of recognized in horticulture as the fastest way to grow plants. Um, you can certainly grow in cocoa in other ways, but you, you're not kind of unlocking that potential. Sour Diesel Changi in the uh, chat asked Cheap Home Grow, is there any way to increase trichome development? Uh, any idea if UVA can speed up trichome ripening? And I don't personally have any data to suggest that. And personally, I think a lot of people get hung up on like trying to rush their trichomes development or like rush the cycle. And I think if you want to do something like that, breeding is a place that you should really look into because you can actually take faster flowering plants and breed them with each other and shorten your flower cycle. So technically you're gonna have faster developing trichomes if you're right. just trying to get quicker harvests over and over. I mean, there are people that have already done that. And if you've got stuff that you like, you can find the faster flowering phenos and, and try and work with those. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's a number of things that growers try to do sometimes to like speed things up um, when it would probably be better to just sort of accept the rates of things that as they're designed to work. Um, 
I think that that's particularly true at the the flip. People often try to like speed up the flip in, in various strategies to sort of make plants start flowering faster. It's like, why? The plant's going through a pretty stressful time in its life. Um, give it the time to sort of make that transition. Don't overstress it during that period of time, you know? Um, anyway. I, I think that, uh, I don't know that it would uh, make them um, amber mature faster in that way. I think the UV, from what we understand so far anyways, is that it will help the cannabinoid levels, but I don't know that they're going to, yeah. that uh, the UV is going to um, necessarily speed up the ripening. But since we kind of jump quickly back to the topic of the lights, one thing I wanted to say, I didn't get a chance to say earlier, is that I think one, um, it's, it's good to know all the metrics when it comes to lights. The other thing I think that's really uh, a, a big race right now to see who can get it right is form factor because um, yep. the different light form factors help to for something super important which is light distribution and you know Jack was talking about you know uh, earlier when when we were with HIDs reflectors is how you kind of that was your only choice with light distribution uh, because they're like single or you know or double bulbs in the middle of the grow tent, but with LEDs and, you know, with the diodes being so small, um, you know, light distribution. So for, so I'll just give you an example. Some of the best lights out there are these strip lights where it spreads the light over an entire, uh, entire footprint. Whereas, so for example, you could, you could save money because you can go with one of these uh, PCBs um, or what people call quantum boards and go, really really intense uh but it's going to be super intense in the middle and it always always and the worst is in the corners and if you look at a legitimate um a ppfd chart in the corners like sometimes the numbers are just they're dismal they're like uh, like in the in the double digit ppfds where so one of the things i suggest is one of the ways you can save money is like i said look at one of those larger fixtures and then you can go down in the power consumption or, or intensity because it distributes the light much better or instead of getting for example um, one single uh, PCB or quantum board uh, large quantum board go one level down and get two of them where you can put one on either side of like a four by four or five five by five tent and I think it really only affects the larger tents uh, anything three by three by three and down um, most of the, any of the form factors will work. The light distribution is okay. But once you start getting at the 48 inches by 48 inches and 60 by 60 or five by five, uh, sometimes you might want to take a look at two smaller light fixtures because the overlapping light uh, in the middle will make it intense in the middle, but you'll also get a lot more coverage in the corners or on the sides. And yep. uh, that would be a huge benefit. You know, if you're using that entire space, because if you got one intense one, you're one, the, the plants in the middle are going to get a huge amount of light, but then in the corners, they'll get like almost nothing. I, I totally agree with that. Those bar lights are, and you know, it's Fluence that really sort of drove the market in that direction. Um, but they have the, the sort of best efficiency now um, to deliver usable PPF. And they end up, when we test the, the bar light fixtures, they end up with a higher usable PPF because we're counting those, those edge readings count just as much as sort of the middle reading does. 
Um, I just want to point out that there are some quantum boards that are practically the same footprint that they're designed to cover as well. Um, the, the Mars PS series that, that we recommend is practically the footprint that, that it's designed to cover. Um, it's a little bit smaller than sort of the bar spread out is, but they spread the light really well. And on the PPFD charts and the edges when there's reflective walls, um, those values are, are all actually really close together to the, the center readings on that. Um, but the single point lights, um, when all the light originates from one single point, you got to remember that the PPFD varies based on distance from the, the source of light. So those edges that are further from that source of light will have a lower density of photons than those plants that are, are closer to the middle of that um, point. So yeah, I agree with that totally, Kanka. Yeah, the form factor. And, you know, and, and to that point, you know, uh, HLG's newest light, uh, the, I think it's Diablo, don't quote me on that, but I it's was okay. talking with Jim. Yeah, I was talking to GML about it. I'm actually looking to pick one up because it's a- GML's in chat right now. Oh, there you go. Uh, Shout out to up, Grandmaster GML? Level. Yep. Uh, um, so I was talking to him, and I, you know, I think he's gonna have them up here in Canada next week or so. So I'm looking to pick up one or two of those and, and run them. They're, they're larger, they seem to be larger. I don't know the dimensions offhand, but uh, so form factor with uh, bottom line is the point I was trying to get across is that form factor with uh, uh, with grow lights is uh, is really big when it comes to technology now because it's distributing that light over the, the entire footprint. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we look at that in our test reports. Um, I'm actually developing a, a formula. We need more data to get a better sort of uh, formula for for evaluating the distribution of light in the, the PAR map and the PPFD charts. Um, you know, currently the industry standard for evaluating the distribution of light is just to compare the lowest PPFD reading with the highest PPFD reading. Um, and so we're working on a formula that's going to consider the, the standard deviation of all of the PPFD readings um, and use that standard deviation to develop an index of how well the, the various fixtures deliver light. But I can already back up everything CanCan saying in terms of the form factor makes a tremendous difference in, in sort of the distributional um, efficiency of the lights. And if they distribute the photons better, then you can absolutely sort of increase the, the average PPFD without going over the, the maximum PPFD um, dictated, as we talked about at the beginning of the episode, by um, the photosynthetic limits. Um, and that definitely allows you to, to sort of dial in the grow uh, much more. Those fixtures tend to be more expensive still, but they're coming down in price. Um, and like I said, some of the quantum boards, um, depending on how sort of big the physical light itself is and what its sort of uh, physical footprint is in comparison to the, the light footprint that it's supposed to cover, um, they can do a, a really excellent job at, at distributing the light and avoiding those hot spots as well. Well, just for the pure intensity of that, I've got that pulled up right now out of curiosity, the HLG, it's called the 650R and uh, it's retailing at 1,099 as far as price goes, US dollars, but the actual dimensions were 29 inches by 22 inches by four inches. 
and okay. that's still pretty small what size yeah and the footprint's huge i mean the veg footprint is a seven by seven at 48 inches the flowering footprint is a five by five at 30 inches we've already talked about how that's kind of a bunch of malarkey too right the veg versus flower um you, you we can did cover that, that but what's that uh, we covered that in the last grow. I wanted to throw out that what you're talking about with the spread and, and being more affordable. Like it's my grow tested the Lumatech Zeus 600 watt pro, which is uh, pretty affordable and one of the most efficient lights that he tested with that same bar style. So a lot of them are getting more affordable and, and you can DIY it for a little bit less. And I know Spartan Grow and it's about 557 here. Yeah. So I know it means it's a little bit later there. So I know you got yeah. three shows tonight. You're a marathon man over there. So I think uh, if you want to, you could give your shout outs before you got to run. Yep. The, the most impressive thing about that light. 2.8 umoles per joule and that's an eight that's a conservative estimate i guess 1700 ppf all right i just want to say you know like i always say i love the panel i love uh, hanging out with you guys and talking Lighting's not my strong suit so i didn't say too much but i hung out in chat and you know chat's always there to uh, entertain me to say the least so shout out chat and uh, growers love everybody growers love spartan ground thanks for joining us tonight all right, guys, you know, it, it is sort of the end of, I don't know if we missed any questions we're pending or anything else, or if we want to move straight into our, uh, our shout outs. Does anybody Can I else say one more thing before we wrap up? Absolutely, Jack. So we talked a little bit about harvest time and we had a hash maker I greatly respect come on a few weeks back at this point, Frenchie Cannoli. He talked about how a lot of outdoor grown plants are going to have amber trichomes, even like early to mid flower. And that he thinks like the rain and the wind and the, and the bugs and all the other stresses from being outdoor, maybe even the UV, who knows, could potentially cause that. And that's why a lot of outdoor growers go by the look of the plant, like the fade and the development of the buds and the swell <clears throat> and how thick and everything else. So I was just a little bit curious. I haven't uh, grown outdoor with a ma macro lens. I always went by the look of the plant and more when I was indoor, we were looking at trichomes and other things like that. So if any outdoor growers out there have experience or photos with the uh, trichome development, if you have pictures of plants i'd be curious to see them if you could send them my way in the dms i would uh love to discuss more because i think my running hypothesis right now is what we're seeing when the trichomes sometimes turn from clear to an amber or a yellow is the oxidization of uh, terpene versus the oxidization of uh, thc to a cbn because most of the testing i'm seeing sh with flower specifically shows little to no cbn even when it's made into hashish there's almost no cbn in most cultivars so it's a, it's a process that takes a lot of heat <clears throat> and time to degrade. And I think people often assume that it happens a little bit easier than it does. So I'm interested to see more data coming out on the actual colors of the trichomes and things like that. So I just wanted to throw that out there before we uh, all sign off. Yeah, I agree. There's definitely, um, you know, science that needs to be done to evaluate that. I was thinking about that when we were talking about it earlier, that at this point, determining harvest window is really an art. I don't think it is yet a science, um, but I think that there is at least some scientific principles to continue to, to work out and develop and refine about that um, and improve our, our knowledge and our understanding about how that works. So that's an important thing I think for new growers to be aware of. Um, there aren't any right answers, certainly not with the knowledge that we have now, um, but even once we understand much more about that, um, that biochemistry of, of cannabis, it's still going to depend on on individual preferences and the desires and all of this. So um, there's still not going to be just one right answer to that question, I think. Great point. So.
anyways, guys, thanks um, for the panel. Thanks to the chat. This is a fun episode. I'm going to send it around and let everybody, um, let the few of us left on the panel at this point, um, do our sign-offs. So why don't we throw it over to Matthew Gates? Thanks for joining us today, Matthew. You're very welcome. I definitely enjoyed this particular episode because I, we got to talk about like where the where the light meets the plant meets the, you know, all the biology to do with it. Even got to talk about some pest stuff. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, then follow me onto Xenthanol, uh, the YouTube channel I was commenting in because I have a ton of content on that exact particular um, subject matter. Awesome. Thank you, Matthew. Yeah, we, uh, we definitely appreciate your expertise in that area. And I think that, that you bring such a such an awesome sort of dimension of knowledge to this show that, that I really appreciate you showing up every week, even when it's not sort of right up your alley. It's always fun to sort of see your perspective on things. Um, so thanks for bringing that today. Let's toss it over to Jack, Jack Greenstock. Thanks for showing up. Thank you for having me. And I want to second <clears throat> what you just said about Matt's uh, perspective on IPM. And I think it should enlighten some of the viewers who aren't already aware of how IPM can sort of be related a little bit to everything in cannabis cultivation and cultivation in general. And I think it's an often overlooked thing. And for us to have a specialist who um, share so openly is quite valuable to me and the rest of the chat and the panel. So thanks again to Matt for coming. Thanks to Rust Brandon. That's rust.brandon on Instagram. He was with us earlier and he had to drop off. Also uh, at Noah the Groa with two E's T H E E G R O W A on Instagram uh, dropped off before we did our sign out. So shout out to him. I am at Jack Greenstock on Instagram as well as Cannabuzz. You can also find me at Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter. And I host my own podcast called Greenstock Talks. That's got a few episodes if you'd like to tune in and listen to those. Awesome. Thank you as always, Jack. And uh, last but certainly not least is our grower up north, Can Can Grow. Give us your shout outs, Can Can. Yeah, thanks a lot, uh, Dr. MJ. Yeah, since we were talking about lights, uh, like uh, Dr. Coco, uh, I've been pretty neck deep in, in the lights just because I've been doing several episodes and still have a few more on my podcast, the Germ to Jar Cannabis Cultivation Podcast. Uh, talking about light. And uh, because of that, I've actually just ordered the, the latest um, quantum uh, quantum meter from Apogee. It's uh, one of their new ones, the, uh, one of their new sensors, the PARFAR, which uh, uh, doesn't only do um, PPFD within the PAR range, but it also does far red. So I'm excited about that coming because on my um, on my YouTube channel, I'll be testing a few different lights uh, with that sensor. So if anybody's interested, uh, you know, come check it out. For example, I'm going to be doing my my existing ceramic metal halides, which I've been running for oh about a year and a half. I'm going to take those. I'm going to test the par on the used bulbs, and then I'm going to put new bulbs in them and show what the degradation is on those. And then I'll be doing the par reading, uh, the PPFD readings for. Um, the Mars Hydro I have, the FGI light that I have coming, and uh, the HLG 650 lights that I'm going to be ordering. So anyways, if you want information on that, check out my channel, Can Can Grow, and uh, uh, all my other all my other profiles. So thanks. Thanks for having me. Awesome, Can Can. Yeah, maybe we should talk about using some of those tests in our, in our test reports. Um, 
because that's it. That's exactly what we're going to get into as well. I got my um, quantum meter. I'm setting up my my space and talking to uh, various manufacturers about sending me lights to to start testing along with Shane. So that's really what we're doing with the, this new Grow Light Guide project. Um, I shared a, a link a while ago in the the chat there, but you guys. Um, can come on over and, and check it out um, at CocoaForCannabis.com. Um, it's in the table of contents. You can go directly to the Grow Light Guide with forward slash grow dash light dash guide. Um, but we've got the Grow Light Calculator that I was talking about earlier. Um, we're loading in a bunch of uh, Shane. So Shane is Shane from uh, Migro Lighting that does the, the PPFD tests. Um, we're collaborating on this project and uh, publishing his testing data and we're going to go forward and, and test new grow light fixtures there's only a few test reports up there now um but the calculator is probably the coolest thing that you can find published data on grow lights enter it into the calculator and, and use that to make fair and accurate comparisons between different types of grow light fixtures so um if you're interested in any of that stuff come check me out i'm dr mj coco at cocoforcannabis.com um, shout out to the chat for being with us as always chat you guys make this show really what it is um, and I don't think it would be the same without our, our reliable and dedicated chatters um, of course to the panelists those that are still here um, Jack and Can Can and Matthew as well as those that, that had to leave us already um, you know th this show like we always say it's one of the highlights of our week so thanks for joining us thanks to um, Shane for setting this whole thing up with uh, Cheap Home Grow and you guys have been listening to the Cheap Home Grow show growing with my fellow growers and this is Dr. MJ Coco telling you grower love. Thanks for us and Doc.